Hey, you're still here at George Mason University. I'm back with Dr. Ben Kern from the University of Wyoming. Uh, we're going to be discussing the article titled Teacher Beliefs and Change in Practice Through Professional Development. Um, it was published in the Journal of Teaching and Physical Education. Um, as always, you'll have the full site to the article in the show notes. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for coming back on. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really uh, excited to, to be here again. Uh, I love uh, listening to the podcast and uh, it's a great honor to be honored again. Thanks. Absolutely. Um, so your research is focused on teachers' socialization and beliefs. And, and I, I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, um, notably like episode three, episode five. We have a theory breakdown by Kevin Richards about this, but... Um, can you just give us a brief overview of how socialization and beliefs can influence how teachers process pedagogical change? Yeah, yeah. Well, if, if Kevin explained it to you, you got the you got the best person there, uh, uh, or at least one who's really active with it. He and, knows a thing or two uh, about it, I think. <laughs> he knows a thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, just to, to remind the the listeners, though, that the you know generally through socialization. Uh, starting off while while we are all uh, K-12 students in physical education classes, we get an example shown to us by multiple teachers about about what it means to be a physical education teacher and sort of uh, delete beliefs about, you know, what the purpose of physical education are developed then, too. And mm-hmm. then, you know, when students come to uh, PEAT programs, then, you know, a, a bit of deprogramming takes place sometimes. But, but essentially the... Uh, you know, the professional, the standard professional skills are taught then. And um, that and that comes with, again, it's its own form of socialization. And, um, you know, future teachers at that point, you know, generally tend to to change to some extent uh, their beliefs about the purpose of PE because they're now shown the other side of the curtain, so to speak. And, uh, you know, it's the hope of PEAT programs that they that they make a lot of change with uh, the belief system of their their Pete graduates, but but we know that when they then become teachers in uh, you know in, in K twelve, they enter a new phase of socialization where they're now being uh, socialized by a range of people, including their own students, other teachers, uh, administrators, parents, and a lot of times this socialization sort of reverts them back to you know maybe beliefs that were developed before they entered Pete, and so. Sometimes PEAT programs, uh, you know, don't have quite the the staying power. You know, sometimes the skills wash out when they get to this organizational socialization phase. Mm-hmm. And you know how that how that relates to to teacher change is, you know, the the beliefs about the purpose of PE and the role of the teacher, which are developed through socialization, can become highly resistant to change. In fact, um, you know, depending on how strong the belief is, and so. Uh, we, you know, we know from socialization research, and Kevin probably mentioned this, that teachers generally develop an innovative or a custodial orientation, meaning custodial, meaning it sort of uh, preserves the traditional type of teaching and innovative is looking more toward, you know, the, the, the newest and best uh, pedagogical practices and in, in sort of uh, evolving over time with, the, with where the field goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, teachers develop one or the other of those, uh, but you know the uh, you know their their willingness to adopt new practices and things that might be uh, you know perceived as best practice or better for their students is really dependent on the 
their their uh, you know how the strength of their beliefs about what they what they're doing and and kind of where they land on that innovative or custodial orientation sort of uh, continuum, I yeah. suppose. So it really makes a big difference. Yeah, and I'm curious. Um... You know, a lot of the research shows that the average PEAT program just doesn't have enough time to actually make a significant impact on what what these pre-service teachers believe, um, because we just don't have a lot of pedagogy classes that were afforded in the U.S. Um, now, I'd, I'd like to bring up what Phil Ward talked about on a recent PEAT collaborative, um, which they're all recorded on, on this podcast, so you can go listen back on that. But... Um, I'm, I'm anticipating this uh, study that he's, uh, he's working on about examining every single PEEP program in the U.S. And mm-hmm. one of the far end of the spectrum and the most intense and well-designed and rigorous program that he mentioned was the University of Wyoming. And I know that this specific study isn't about the University of Wyoming pre-service teachers, but do you think that a program like yours, that where you're at now where there's just a ton of field experience and really embedded uh, placements and making a ton of unit plans and lesson plans and really like digging really deep into it. Do you feel like programs like that have a chance at uh, really changing the belief system of people who come in and they just say, I just want to coach and roll out the ball? Yeah, I, well, I appreciate the, the compliment to the program. And yes, uh, I, I think this program and ones that have really high impact, uh, like you mentioned, uh, have they, what they have in common is that they expose students to uh, not only a, a really high volume of good examples in, uh, you know, exemplary teaching to kind of help change that script in their head of what they think physical education is but like you mentioned also having a high volume of of field experience where they are required to you know design and implement you know standards-based uh instruction utilizing best practices and are and are held to a really high standard you know particularly in this program we rely a lot on systematic observation of students and require them to reflect upon the you know the data that's collected they collect it on themselves they collect it on others but they you know they 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 reflect and analyze that mm-hmm. um, and and really the volume of experience you know by the time students get through our program we have three lab uh, sections that basically commandeer entire semesters worth of physical education in public schools they get, you know, 80 to 85, maybe, maybe upwards of 90 live lessons that they have taught to, to actual, you know, K-12 students. So it's, it's a volume. I think it really is a volume thing. It has to be high quality too, but I do think programs like ours that I, I believe are high impact. Um, if you go back a few years, Kim Graber published some work on a program in South Florida mm-hmm. that was also considered a really high impact program. Um, and had some of these same features. And honestly, this program here was designed years before I got here and and took a lot of that into consideration in the design. So to answer your question, yes, I do think programs like this that have a high impact can move the needle on beliefs. However, um, you know, if you refer back to the occupational socialization literature, you know, uh, was it Lordy that estimated something like 13,000 hours 
students spend in observation of their PE teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we get even here, we only really have our students for about four semesters. And I know some programs, uh, even the one that I used to work in was a lot less than that. So just from a sheer volume standpoint, it's really hard to compete with acculturation or pre-training. And then it's really hard to also compete with, you know, four or five years into the, into the, you know, organizational socialization on the job. Right. Um, that's, that's daily exposure, you know? So it's like, um, I think teachers who, who come through impact programs, high impact programs still really have to, um, they've got to have a lot of courage and a lot of guts to maintain best practice mm-hmm. in the face of forces that will try to push them away from best practice, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I thought you were going to say, however, it snows a lot in Wyoming. So that's the only <laughs> term, like, you know, issue of getting out there and going to the program, but I won't, I won't let you even comment on that. Um, so your article, you know, what we're talking about today is about ongoing professional development. So before we dive into the actual research, uh, what do we know in the literature about effectiveness of professional development to address teacher beliefs when we're aiming to achieve what we want is pedagogical change? Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate the question. And, uh, and unfortunately, the, the answer to the question is not um, uh, it, it's not as optimistic. Uh, professional development just historically in education has had a relatively poor track record. And it's generally not because the, the professional dis- development itself in, in the moment is not is not good. There's been a lot of good quality programming go out, uh, you know, all over the country. But the typical approach takes this, you know, superficial one day workshop or one and done sort of concept uh, and delivers it to teachers from the top down their administration or some other, you know, some other entity that has uh, sort of uh, any kind of power over teachers just sort of feeds uh, you know, new information to teachers in, in usually a, a manner that, that didn't really engage them in the process very much in terms of, you know, engaging them as learners or decisions about what should be done and how it should be done, things like that. They generally take this top down approach and, and then it's, it's one and done, you know, the, the follow-up isn't there or, or, or even, you know, the, the the reasons for why we were doing this in the first place are often missing. So that's the, um, you know, the, the, the typical in-service professional development in schools kind of utilizes this approach, uh, or at least it's very common. And so the track record hasn't been good. And, you know, a lot of teachers, you say, oh, we're, we've got an in-service today. And, you know, you, you see the eyes roll and, um, yeah. you know, things like that. And then in physical education, uh, you know, most PE teachers don't even get a chance to eye roll because uh, nothing's about nothing's about physical education. Generally, right. most most professional development is is school wide behavior initiatives or it's focused on language arts and mathematics yeah. and, uh, you know, and, and improving test scores and things of that nature. And so things specifically for PE are generally just absent. Uh, but 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 that doesn't exempt them from having to go to other things that aren't necessarily focused in in PE and 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 uh, and many of the the approaches there are, are like I mentioned to have this sort of um, 
you know, sort of weak approach in terms of effectiveness. So it's uh, that's that's sort of the landscape now, or that really has historically been the landscape. And, you know, just something to keep in mind, uh, you know, it was mentioned in the paper, but, you know, some of the the top experts in education, uh, I mentioned Gusky and, and Fullen are, are pretty clear about what makes good professional development. It has to you know, communicate a good vision about what and why things are happening, has to get teachers engaged, you know, primarily from the bottom up with top down support, of course, but they've got to be learners and contributors. They've got to be, um, there's got to be resources for implementation and there's got to be a reflective cycle at some point that focuses on, on what's best for students, the student outcomes. And, and really when, when all those things come together, uh, teacher beliefs can change. It's it's been shown in some of the some of the better projects. There's been a few in in physical education, but there's been um, some interventions in in the education literature that show this. So uh, it can happen. It just doesn't normally happen that way. Right. It's sort of the short of the short of it. Yeah. So you you have uh, two uh, acronyms in your paper. So can you tell us about first the Healthy Eaters Lifelong Movers Project? and how that facilitated the formation of this uh, San Luis Valley Physical Education Academy. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to talk about HELM. Uh, Healthy Eaters Lifelong Movers was a, a project that was initiated by the Colorado School of uh, Public Health, um, UC Denver. A uh, couple of uh, uh, researchers there, Elaine Belansky, Nick, Nick Cutforth, were the uh, the PIs on this project, and it was a it was a broad project working with 14 school districts in southern Colorado in the San Luis Valley, and uh, the project itself had had several aspects that that it was uh, intervening on, uh, some some of it with nutrition, some with administration and after school projects, and, uh, you know things like that, but also the the uh, one of the large focuses of that was to uh, help these districts uh, optimize the the quality of the physical education that was provided. And so, through that portion, uh, a, a you know a sub organization was created within Helm called the San Luis Valley Physical Education Academy. And so that was um, that involved all actually all physical education teachers at all 14 districts. And that that may sound like a lot of teachers but in this area is a very remote part of the country um, those 14 school districts some of the districts themselves actually had um, you know something around a hundred students in the entire district wow. so um, <laughs> so sometimes a district only had one physical education teacher and uh, even the largest one in that group I believe had you know, something around four or five thousand students district wide. So, just not not a very big place, but a, a rural place in in southern Colorado. And so, part of the Helm focus was to provide a, a greater opportunity for rural schools. And so, that was sort of the um, spirit of that project. So, what what did you actually do in the in the study? Like, what were your methods about? Yeah. So. This is important for the for reading this paper and understanding it is the 
the, the paper that we're actually discussing today about the belief change through the professional development is a three-year follow-up to the HELM project. And so I'll give just a quick overview of the, the HELM project with regard to the PE teachers provided, and this is this is three years prior to the current study, but provided um, you know, professional development from SPARC elite trainers, the SPARC programming uh, in terms of their curricular program, and then about $4,000 worth of equipment to each teacher to utilize. Um, all of this was provided over a two-year span, and then site coordinators, which were uh, much like instructional coaches, would come and visit each teacher uh, once a month or twice a month over that period of time, something around like 10 visits or so, and were there to help them, guide them through, you know, utilizing um, different pedagogical practices and a different curricular program, and ultimately to try and increase, um, you know, the physical activity during class, promotion of physical activity outside of classes, um, and, 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 and higher, you know, higher quality instruction in, in classes. The SOFIT instrument was utilized to, um, um, to gauge physical activity levels over that time and lesson context and the promotion of PA outside of, of classes. So that was kind of the original study, and that, that, those data are, are published in a separate paper. This paper, we, we wanted to follow up years later to really determine whether or not, uh, you know, whether anything had the changes that we had, had noticed during the, the first uh, iteration of the project were, were, uh, were still there. And, and to what extent the project was successful in changing beliefs, because we, we didn't, um, didn't measure any kind of uh, belief system uh, marker at the beginning of the Helm project, but wanted to gauge some of the um, what, what teachers would say from a from a qualitative standpoint uh, about their experiences uh, some years later, which you know we considered that as um, it, if they were still using these practices and they're still very fond of them three years later, it would be indicative of of a change that that was that is likely very permanent. Right. So that was sort of the the approach here. So we. We uh, conducted interviews with 17 of the teachers three years after the project was over, and um, and that's so our results of this paper are that. We also, uh, I guess you look in the paper, there's a table in there that that uh, we went back to some of the original SOFIT data mm -hmm. to do an individual teacher profile because the original, the original project had only reported aggregates of, of SOFIT data. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to have a profile of each teacher of what change they actually made during the project. And then we could, we could talk with them in interviews to determine, you know, what things are you still doing? You know, what changed about you during that time? What's, what's different now? What's the same now? Things like that. Yeah. So as we get into the results, I'm wondering if you can give us a couple examples of classroom management strategies that changed in the teachers approaches and kind of the resources that the PD uh, provided them to kind of help achieve these changes. Yeah. 
good. Yeah, the probably one of the biggest things, you know, the project was implementing Spark and was uh, emphasizing, you know, increases in physical activity during class and promoting it outside. So, so obviously, a lot of the strategies that teachers were exposed to through the Spark uh, uh, workshops were ways to increase physical activity throughout the class. One of which being instant activities at the beginning of class, and that seemed to be really effective. We had a lot of teachers in the program who. Um, you know, in a very traditional sense, their kids would come to their class and they would, you know, sit in usually like squad lines for, a, you know, a fair amount of time while instruction was given or other other managerial tasks were, were taken on. And one of the things we got the, most of the teachers to do is just begin the class with with instant activity, meaning we had something ready to go and, and active right away. That was a, a very simple thing, but it, it, it resulted in a in an increase in physical activity during class by, by quite a bit. In fact, we, we actually measured that in our SOFIT times. We we broke it out for physical activity time or MVPA in the first five minutes of class, and that was one of our biggest increases. So that was really simple. Um, other things that, that worked really well uh, through this project was just helping teachers understand that much of their managerial things like students getting equipment out and things like that um, could very much be, you know, the responsibility of students and and would in, would increase sort of the, uh, you know, some activity time. It, it, it would more so decrease the sitting and the downtime and, and give students more responsibility, make things a little bit more uh, student centered. Mm -hmm. So uh, that that piece was was helpful as well as helping teachers to uh, be more clear and concise about their instructions you know rather than you know talking for really long periods of time breaking up some of their their verbal instruction into smaller chunks so that kids could um, you know listen more attentively and then get busy doing something and sort of a, a more a, a little bit more efficient approach with instruction um, and, and probably the, one of the largest things also was was getting them the equipment through the project. Many teachers we found, and this is a these are rural schools, um, you know, they didn't have enough balls for every kid to have their own ball. Right. You know, um, <laughs> things as simple as that is just giving enough equipment so that everybody, every student can be engaged at all times. So um, it was a range of things, but a lot of simple strategies, honestly, when it came down to it, were really effective. Yeah. So. I thought it was cool to read the teacher's quotes about uh, when they talked about overcoming their early socialization and their shift uh, in their ideology. Because, I mean, if we're thinking about teacher socialization, that that was something about like overcoming it and making that change. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can walk us through the process that you believe most influenced the teacher's ability to change their beliefs. Yeah, it it. It really, I kind of credit the, the theorists on this one, but, uh, you know, when teachers could see that, that, that their teacher, that their students were, uh, were more active, they, they appeared to be more engaged and were learning more and, and enjoyed physical education classes more when they could actually see that, that's, that's when it really changed for for many of them, mm -hmm. um, the, this to help understand the sample group, there was there was everything from first year teachers to thirty five year teachers in this group, and um, you know some were were really you know really firm in their beliefs that about the way they 
they would teach. And, and we had to kind of, we had to ask them, you know, we're going to have to ask you just to, to, to give us a, a good faith effort here and give this a try. And if, you know, if it doesn't work, if it falls flat, you know, we'll, we'll adjust with you. But, but if it does work, you know, we, we want you to be willing to, um, to maybe adopt something new for, for your practice. And so, um, that's really where it came down to is it was the work with, I believe with the site coordinators and, and sort of the, 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 the personal relationship that was developed there to help them, you know, take some risks, try something new, um, be willing to fail a little bit and, and, you know, make changes. And, and ultimately over time, um, really seeing was believing for most of our teachers. That was the really big change there. And it's clear that it needs to take time for them to do it, but also like you can understand the the fear or the inadequacy that a person might feel after teaching one way for 10, 15 years and somebody externally coming in and saying, hey, we're going to do this completely different and just <laughs> kind of just let go. Just trust me. Um, so I'm sure that that's a that's a tough, tough walk for them to go on. Yeah. And, you know, the, one of the things that, that was very common, we, you know, most of our teachers, uh, I would say were a, a bit more on the, on the custodial side and, you know, with any kind of student centered pedagogy, you know, the teacher has to sort of let go of control and give more of the control of the class to students. Mm -hmm. And, and spark has many elements of that in it, just like, you know, like other instructional models as well. And one of the biggest leaps of faith for the teachers were to, you know, um, to let students have more responsibility. Oh, they're just going to, you know, they're going to, they're just going to, it's just going to turn into a, a big mess. Like I was, this isn't going to be good. I just, I just know what's going to happen. And then, you know, their biggest fears didn't come true and kids actually handled the responsibility. And it was like, Oh, Oh, well that sure takes a lot off of me. I, I yeah. feel better that they can do that on their own. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that, you know, that, that's sort of how it changed is little by little and seeing is believing, I guess. And in your results, you also talk about how uh, the professional development was able to develop value to PE outside of the gym. So you talk about the teachers mentioning earning a lot more respect with their colleagues, having other teachers interact with them to improve students' physical activity. You know, you had support by students and even getting that par uh, parental input. So can you tell me a little bit about the process of how you were able to involve the school community in the program? Yeah, that was one really, really nice thing about this project. And we, um, um, it, a couple of different things. One, we we did have a parallel program with the school principals as well. Um, and it's important to note how we actually went about um, originally recruiting our teachers to this. So we, we, we utilize the uh, what's called community-based participatory research or CBPR. And that's really a, uh, was the uh, initiative by Elaine Belansky and Nick, Nick Cutforth. Um, they both do a lot of work in public health research and that's a very common approach. And so when we started the project initially, we went around as site coordinators and we engaged the teachers at their, at their workplace and told them about the project asked them if they wanted to be involved and allowed them to uh, take that to their school principal. They, we then 
sat with school principal and teacher and signed memorandum of understanding with that group and helped help the principal understand that this was going to be happening and a lot was going to be given to their their teacher in terms you know very uh, very highly valuable piece of professional de- development was going to be given to their teacher and we needed their support and so part of that started just with the recruitment we got principals on board and then we also met with principals about four times over the two year period to help them understand more about what their what what their physical education teacher was doing in the classroom, how we were influencing some of what they were doing, but more so to help educate them how to be a strong advocate for for PE and how to evaluate uh, mm-hmm. the you know the the effectiveness of a PE teacher because what we found is you know just and this isn't written in the paper anywhere but many of our principals were were generally supportive of physical education but had no idea really what to do or say when they went in to watch a physical education teacher teach. I mean, aside from the sort of the universal engagement type of things that they would look for in any classroom. So, um, so that was a big part of it was getting them on board initially, getting our teachers on board initially, helping them to understand what we were going to be doing over this period of time. And then, and, and so that they kind of ran with it and, you know, they would see us, they would see, you know, everybody in their school would see us coming in and working with the PE teacher. Kids started coming out of PE classes and telling their classroom teachers all this new and different things they're doing. And it sort of started a dialogue with other classroom teachers with the PE teachers. And so um, over time, um, you know, our, our physical education teachers just sort of started to enjoy this different role in their school building. Um, so, you know, that they were the health leader, you know, the, the champion. <laughs> so can you talk to so, me about the students? I mean, you shook things up in their life because their PE started looking a lot different. How did they react yeah. to the changes in, in PE? Yeah, they. I'll be honest with you. At first, they were a little unsure, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in, I'll be honest, in some classes, you know, it was kids would come in and it was sit down and be quiet for a while. They watched, you know, and they'd get to play a bunch. And, you know, some kids did enjoy that sort of approach, you know, mostly because they got to just play a lot or in other classes, you know, there was a lot of dodgeball games going on and things like that. And some, you know, there are some kids who enjoy that, especially the ones who excel at it. And so there was some that weren't really loving, you know, the, the approach at Spark, uh, you know, the, the teachers are using, but for the most part, uh, in, in a short amount of time, the, the class, you know, overwhelmingly the, the kids and enjoyed this, this version of physical education a lot more than what they had before. In fact, uh, you know, I was one of the site coordinators at the time I would come in and, and a lot of kids, you know, they, they got used to seeing me cause I was there so often and they would, they would just, they would tell me how much they liked PE and, you know, they didn't like it before or, um, you know, they just, they enjoyed this version. And I think, I think a lot of what they really ended up enjoying the most was, was the opportunity to, to get engaged and do something enjoyable, um, you know, right away. And, and, and I think they also experienced, um, some, some value to it 
due to a lot of the autonomy that they were getting, the more they were getting a lot more responsibility to, uh, you know, to, to engage in these activities at their own pace or um, have some say in what they were learning. And I think their kids, they really enjoyed it a lot more because of that as well. But yeah. it was certainly very popular among the students. Great. So you mentioned in the beginning that teachers hesitated to engage in the PD. Um, first question, was the professional development mandatory? And second, uh, can you tell us about the aspects that helped teachers buy into the uh, PD? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I, to clarify, that a lot of the hesitation that teachers experienced with this was when it came to the uh, – the part where they had to change what they were doing. That was the really big hesitation. In fact, the, the, we started with the, uh, the spark workshops and our teachers just loved that. They loved getting there, working with other teachers, meeting other teachers. And they, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a spark workshop, but they do a really good job engaging people and they sort of, uh, re-energize people's, uh, um, conviction for teaching physical education so so there was a, a there was a big support there's a lot of support on that end of it but the hesitation initially was after a first couple of site visits with some teachers you know they were like they just weren't sure like what was going to happen i guess it was a lot of the, was the hesitation around um you know somebody coming in to watch you teach mm -hmm. and and these are physical education teachers so they're not used to that as much as maybe the english teacher is right. uh, people don't come to watch them as much and so there was definitely that um and and to answer because the 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 PD was not mandatory. In fact, we, I mentioned the, there's this recruitment process. They were, they, it was a voluntary thing, but what we did ask them to do at each school is we did ask them to sign a mem memorandum of understanding, uh, which laid out everything that we were going to provide as part of the, the intervention. But then we asked them the, to, um, you know, in good faith, uh, meet with us each of the time, attend all, attend all of the, the professional development workshops. And, you know, um, that we, we asked them to enter into that agreement willingly. So I guess mandatory, um, isn't the best word for it, but they, they did, they did have some, um, some commitment to it yeah. and, you know, given the cost and what we were doing and things like that, we certainly wanted them to, um, um, you know, to, to feel compelled to be there. Yeah. So, so that's let's, kind of uh, let's talk uh, about that cost as we kind of wrap this up. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you talked about um, the high cost of the program could possibly hinder the feasibility. So I'm wondering what are specific methods of administrating professional development that can be used by schools, even if they don't have the financial resources to replicate something like what you did? Yeah, that, that's the biggest learning piece out of all of this. I'm glad you brought that up uh, is some of the things that were the most effective were some of the most simple things. So that don't cost $2 million and this project cost $2 million to actually implement, but a, a big part of it was research and development and, mm -hmm. and a lot of the equipment that was bought and things like that. But and buying um, out those professors for their, for their <laughs> courses. So they can... exactly, <laughs> they, they took home a pretty healthy stipend, I think. Uh, yeah, but things like, so, the simple things like having a written curriculum and enough equipment for every student 
to have their own piece of equipment when that was necessary. Yeah. I mean, that's very simple, and that's not a big ask of districts. In fact, the fact that many physical education programs don't have that is is just unacceptable. Uh, you know, every other teacher in the building has a written curriculum and has enough equipment for their students to, mm-hmm. to be engaged. Uh, this is not something that you know, is that costs $2 million. It, it costs a few thousand dollars a year and it should be there. Um, the other thing that, that, that we noticed as far as the approach that we used is if we engage teachers as learners, we gave them uh, a very clear vision about what they were being asked to do, gave them, uh, resources and, and, and regular support where they could, where they, where they could engage in an, a, a reflective process about their instruction. When, when that, when that was provided, um, they, you know, I mentioned they were hesitant initially, but, but it didn't take long before they bought in. They, they saw results in what they were doing and, and keep in mind, you know, every school district and every school has this built into their administrative personnel. This is, I mean, the, 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 the number one job of a school principal is to be an instructional leader for the teachers. Um, this is built into their job descriptions and there's other per- personnel and administration who's it's built into their job descriptions as well. And so what we're saying is, you know, this was something that was effective for us and it, it is, it's part of what schools are, are already saying they do um, and want to do for their teachers. So it's within, within their, their grasp there. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, just, the willingness to provide, you know, professional development that is specific to physical education. Um, there may be some additional costs there, but districts can work together. They can, um, you know, schools can can sort of self-serve in some ways where they can they can engage with like university faculty or they can combine some uh, of their resources together to get uh, quality professional development on site but certainly they you know and there's some costs associated but certainly they can support it themselves in-house once this has been delivered they don't need a two million dollar project to make this happen and so I, I think the, the a study like this and a project like this is very good for proving a concept, but um, this is something that, that schools, I think, can learn from, at least the, the big ideas to take to themselves. So. Yeah. And, and I know that, you know, there might be some people listening to this that say, like, no, my school district doesn't pay for one piece of equipment for all of my students. And and I think we, we know that there's schools out there that just don't, and but that's... Part of that is, uh, okay, there's under-resourced schools, and then there's school districts that marginalize physical education and choose not to put their money there. Um, so I think that that's always a tough scenario because I know that, you know, I've been to several schools that don't have the equipment, and I wouldn't blame the PE teacher. And I know I wanted to, like, clarify that you're not pl- blaming the PE teacher for not having the funding. Um, yeah. But those are just like, you know, where do you choose to put the funding into? And, and that comes back to this teacher socialization and the stuff about, you know, advocacy and policy about how are you advocating for your profession and for your position and for your program to make sure yep. that you're heard. And when you need something, it's not drastically expensive to get it. You just have to kind of get innovative and in how to partner with another school to 
have half of that gear over there and half of the gear over there and switch it halfway through the year or something like that, that, that yeah. you can kind of make that happen. Yeah. And to piggyback off of that, I, I think it's important, you know, like you said, from a policy standpoint and an advocacy standpoint, it, it, it became very clear in this study that when, that over time, you know, these teachers felt demarginalized because it, it seemed that what they were doing, at least seemed to them, was part of what we were doing at school, mm -hmm. that it was part of the academic mission of the school. And I think a lot of our principals, even though we didn't report that data, started to see that, see their physical education teachers as more central to their mission. And I think that's really what's lacking. You know, the, the, the fact that PE programs get marginalized is, you know, they wouldn't be marginalized if they were considered essential personnel at the yeah. <laughs> to yeah. essential to the mission and it and it i don't think it really mattered that we used helm and sort of a health-based program that we implemented with that project i think it would work with almost any other focus uh but but leg legitimizing physical education as part of uh, as essential to the mission of the school that's really what um that has to happen and then and then you don't have problems like you know a, a PE teacher complaining they don't have enough equipment um if it's if it's part of what we do then we'll we'll do it the best we can with the resources we have but if but if PE is extra if it's if it's other mm -hmm. um we're just not we're always going to fight this fight and so we really need to be on on the side of this is central to what we do in schools yeah well, Ben, thanks, thanks for coming on. Um, really appreciate you coming back. Um, for those of you who want to read the full article, um, you can check out the full citation in the comments section. Um, and I also want to thank Alba Rodriguez for her help in producing the podcast. So, Ben, thanks for coming on and thanks for sharing your work. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's always a joy to, to kind of relive some of this and, uh, and, and, and have these intellectual talks. Uh, it's a great part about working in this profession. So thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also gonna get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.